Ephesians chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, Paul writes, Therefore be imitators of God as dear children, and walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints, neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know, that no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers of them. Paul writes that we're to walk worthy in Christ in chapter 4, verses, verses 1, and then all through chapter 6 through 9, he's looking at the worthy walk. Remember, we're to live in unity and purity and integrity and now love. Later on, Paul is going to say, I want you to walk in love, but I also want you to walk in the light in chapter 5, verses 7 through 14. Walk carefully in chapter 5, verses 15 through 70. Walk in harmony in chapter 5, verses 8, 18 through chapter 6, verse 9. In chapter 4, verses 17 through 19, Paul argues that the unbeliever or the unsaved are confused in their thinking in, in verse 17, hard in their hearts in verse 18, closed in their minds in verse 18, Filled with impure and greedy thoughts in verse 19. So in contrast, believers are to adopt a lifestyle of telling the truth in verse 25. Honest labor in verse 28. Helping those in need in verse 28. Exercising encouragement in verse 29. Exercising kindness, compassion, forgiveness in verse 42. That's why the therefore is therefore. Remember, in the New Testament, when Paul uses the term walk, he's not talking about putting one step in front of the other. He's talking about the manner in which you live, the manner in which I live. He's, in effect, begging a question, a question that we're forced to ask. And the question, of course, is what does it mean to be a Christian? And of course, you live in a culture and you live in a society where that term has become clearly confused. For many people, being a Christian means, well, I'm not a Buddhist, I'm not a Muslim, I'm not a Jew. For many people, they think it's a, some sort of cultural, religious badge that you're born into. For other people, they're not quite sure what it means. They're clearly at least some conversation that being a Christian is something different than being an unbeliever. And yet, how are we different from the unbeliever? I have a friend who has brought to my attention that because we live in this culture that's so confused about what it means to be a Christian, when we're asked that question, well, how should we respond? 
And his very simple answer is, I respond with, I'm a Christ follower. I am a, and he goes one step further and says, I'm a current Christ follower. This isn't something that I used to be or something that I hope to be, but it's something that I am. And so in chapter 5, Paul is going to give the reader clear direction on how to walk. We follow Jesus in love in verses 1 and 2. We avoid immorality in verse 3. We're supposed to refrain from obscene language in verses 4 and 5. We refuse to allow others to deceive us concerning these important issues in verses 6 through 7. So the big question, do Christians really think and act differently from their unbelieving counterparts? I read some disturbing statistics from the Barna research, which, which basically told that born-again Christians are slightly more likely to get a divorce than their non-Christian counterparts. This 27% of Christians versus 23%. Christians are less likely to give to charity or some benevolence. According to the survey, born-again Christians are likely to give 7%. Non-Christians, 24%. Watch a pornographic movie, born-again Christians, 9%. Non-Christians, 16%. Purchase a lottery ticket, 23% born-again Christians. 27% non-Christians feel satisfied or complete in their life. Born-again Christians responded, 58% said, I'm satisfied with my life. Non-Christians, 49% said, I'm satisfied with my life. Born-again Christians, when asked the question, do you wonder about your purpose in life? Born-again Christians responded, yes, 36%. Non-Christians, 39%. Described themselves satisfied with their life. Born-again Christians said, 69% said, I'm satisfied with my life. 68% of non-Christians said, I'm satisfied with my life. Express the sentiment or belief that it's impossible to get ahead because of financial debt. Born-again Christian says, yes, 33%. Non-Christians, 39%. What's disturbing about this survey is that statistically, self-described Christians weren't significantly more moral, weren't significantly more successful, weren't significantly more self-satisfied. Does that surprise you? Does it shock you? Probably not. You have family and friends. You have people that you know and care about. What's interesting to me is that tragically only 9% of those who described themselves as Christians actually had a biblical worldview or or a Christian worldview. To determine, according to Barna, if a person had a biblical worldview, he asked the respondents to affirm the following. Do you believe in absolute morals? Do you believe in truth as defined in the Bible? Do you believe that Jesus lived a sinless life? Do you believe that God is all-knowing, all-powerful, and still rules today? 
Do you believe that salvation is a gift of God and that it can't be earned? Do you believe that Christians have a responsibility to share their faith in Christ? Do you believe that Satan is real? Do you believe that the Bible is accurate in everything that it teaches? The fact is that 90% of all so-called confessing Christians felt comfortable denying two or more of the things that I just said. So are we to pattern our lives after the world's perception of what it means to be a Christian? Or are we to pattern our lives after what the Bible says? In other words, do we ask and answer the question, well, what does God think about this? Or what does the Bible say about this? We're to pattern our lives after God's character. We're to follow after Jesus. This means that we're to live a life that's marked by (laughs) unity, harmony, purity, love, forgiveness. We're to put off sin. And most notably, the sins of a sensual and sexual nature. We're to put off greed and self-indulgence and put on love and personal sacrifice. We're supposed to give up filthiness and foolish talking and dirty jokes. We're supposed to prepare for eternity because heaven is real. And because hell should be avoided at all costs. But what if you live in a world where you don't really believe that that's true? That heaven may be real, and if it is real, it's probably not the way that it's described in the Bible. It's probably the way it's portrayed on TV, and hell can't be real. Because how could a God of love make a place of eternal punishment? I understand that people struggle with these questions. But the Bible gives answers. So our goal, we're ordinary saints. We're ordinary Christians who are made extraordinary by God's power, by God's spirit, by God's word, by God's love. The ordinary Christian believes in an extraordinary God and an extraordinary Savior who gives you an extraordinary power To live an ordinary life in Christ. So we pattern our lives after Jesus. Look what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5 verse 1. In chapter 5 verse 1 he says, Therefore be imitators of God as dear children. Children imitate their parents. I know that I imitated my father. My children sometimes imitate me, most often mock me. They do it in public. Children imitate their parents. So follow God's example in everything you do because you're his dear children. That's the New Living Translation says, follow God's example in everything. The new birth provides you with a new family. We're to imitate. That means model. God is love. We express that love to the family of faith and then those outside of the faith. So he says, therefore, be imitators of God as dear children. Now, what you've got to do is pause at this very moment in the text and remind yourself, 
what is our amazing standard? It's the Lord. The Lord is our standard. This is the standard not for the super saint. It isn't for the extraordinary person. It isn't for the long-term missionary. It isn't for the full-time minister. It isn't for the person who's gone to seminary. It isn't the person who's read the Bible from cover to cover. This is something for everyone. The believer in God follows God. In order to follow, there has to be some sense of attachment, devotion, allegiance, attention to the things of God. Have you ever asked the question, what does God want from me? Lord, what do you want from me? What do you want me to do? Whatever else it means, it means to act or behave like his child. Did you ever say that to your mother and father? What do you want me to do? I want you to behave. I want you to act like you're a part of our family. I want you to embrace who you are. You, I've given you a name and I've given you, you have a first name and a middle name and a last name. Well, some of you do. And that means something. He wants you to act and behave in a way that is consistent and with the character of Christ or the fruit of the Spirit. The Lord wants you to act like him in what sense? Not in the theological sense. Remember, in, in theology, there's two kinds of attributes of God. The incommunicable attributes and the communicable attributes. I don't want to get too heavy here, but I do want to just remind you of something. The incommunicable attributes of God is he's all-knowing, all-seeing, all-powerful, all-understanding. He's the self-existent being. God doesn't expect you to be a self-existent being. He doesn't expect you to act all-knowing or all-powerful. Isn't that funny? We want to act like God in his incommunicable attributes. I know everything. No, you don't. I understand everything. Probably not. I understand everything from a complete biblical perspective. Probably not. So well, how does he want you to act? In his communicable act. What is that? God is a person. You're a person. God can communicate. You can communicate. God is, has the capacity to love and care. You have the capacity to love and care. In other words, all of the things that God gave you, he's made you in his own image so that you could walk with him. So that's the idea. We are given permission to act like Jesus in a walk of love and a sacrifice of love. We're given permission to love like Jesus and there is no higher calling. There is no deeper doctrine. There is no more noble goal. Years ago, there was published a book entitled In His Steps. Some of you may remember. The book was based on following Jesus. And it gave birth to the phenomenon of the WWJD. What would Jesus do? What would Jesus do? And very seldom do I hear people, well, you know, what would Jesus do in this, this circumstance? Well, you know what? He would sacrifice himself, die, and die for you. Well, what else would he do? <laughs> In other words, when we ask and we answer the question, 
It means to follow him. The word imitator is sometimes translated follower. But oddly enough, in the Greek language, that's not what's spoken of here. When it says imitators, it's the Greek word mimitei. You know that word. We get the word mimic from that word. Our own word is borrowed from its Greek ancestor, mimos, which means to imitate or act. Mimos was a word that was used to describe the actor's art. So when an actor was asked to portray a particular character, he would take on the mannerisms of that character or the voice of that character. Many of you know that Billy Graham just had his 99th birthday and the Pew Research Poll just released, gave the 100 most respected Christians in America at the top of the list still, number one and number two, were Billy Graham and Franklin Graham. Isn't that interesting? Even though he hasn't been heard from in a very long time, he has this effect on the American people. So if I'm going to act like Billy, does that mean I'm going to talk like Billy? Does that mean I'm going to walk like Billy? Does that mean I'm going to preach like Billy? You know, so when you're a pastor or a preacher, you want to adopt the mannerisms. But again, oddly enough, this isn't really what the, the, the text is talking about. Well, if we're going to be like God, or, so are we going to dress like God? Nobody knows how he dresses. Are we going to have a hairstyle like God? He's an invisible spirit being. Aren't you glad? So it doesn't mean mock or, or mimic in the sense of, of make fun of, but it does mean that you are to love like he loves. We're to mimic God's character, but most of all is love. And how is that even possible? Paul says it in Romans Chapter 5, verse 5, that the love of God has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. So when Paul says, the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who is given to us. So when the Bible says, imitate him, imitate him in his love and his sacrifice, and you go, do I have that capacity for love and sacrifice? The answer is yes. Jesus said, Matthew 5, 48, Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father who is in heaven is perfect. Well, and you go, but I'm not perfect. No, the standard that God has given is completion. And what's really interesting to me is that in and of ourselves, we are not perfect. But we are perfect complete in Christ. In Christ, we don't experience perfection of behavior, but rather perfection in the eyes of God. Peter wrote in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 15, as he who has called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of life, because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. And so when you hear these words about holiness, again, there are images of great big hair and long dresses and no makeup and no fun. But that's not what the Bible means by holy. What the Bible means by holy 
is a radical detachment from sin and a radical attachment to Christ. It isn't just a turning away from sin. It's a turning to the Lord. I was thinking when I was preparing this of of an example. When Alexander the Great discovered a coward in his army, the great general said, What is your name? And the soldier replied, Like you, my name is Alexander. (laughs) The general said, Renounce your cowardice or renounce your name. He's basically saying, you have my name? You share my name? Well, guess what? You're not able to hold on to both of these things. You have the name. Christian. It's not a name that you have to be ashamed of. Or afraid of. It's because you are a Christ follower. So to know God is to to be like him in his character. And so how do you know his character? You have to study his word. So to know what God is like, you have to look at Jesus carefully. This is why the Bible says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. In 1 John, it talks about that which we knew from the beginning, which we've handled, which we've touched concerning the word of life. John makes the incredible statement, if if you want to truly understand and know what God is like, just simply look at Jesus. If you want to know how God thinks about things or feels about things or responds in any given fashion. When the Bible says Jesus is the word made flesh, the the word logos is a word that means the express communication. It's a word that means it's supposed to reflect the content of the thing it describes. And so when the Bible says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, that Jesus is the very expression of what God is like. In Colossians 1.15, it says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. So the Bible invites us to consider that the invisible, unknowable, intangible God is made visible and knowable and graspable. By what the Bible says about Jesus. Just like children learn from imitating their parents, we learn by imitating Jesus. And this is why we spend so much time opening up our Bible, looking at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So the second thing is we purpose to love and self-sacrifice. In verse 2, look what it says, and walk in love. As Christ also loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. Verse 1 and 2 are connected. Be an imitator of God. In what way? Walk in love. In what way? As Christ. In what way? He walked in love and sacrifice. You've heard the statement that imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. Well, sometimes it is and sometimes it isn't. Sometimes we'll talk like a person or in order to mock them, not to extol them. 
Paul writes, walk in love. And the construction in the original language is what the Greek scholars call the present imperative. The emphasis is on the action. Walk, keep on walking. So it's a continuous action. The idea, when he says walk in love, the, the idea is start walking, continue walking, and continue walking until the walk is complete. Keep going. Remember, walk is a metaphor for a lifestyle, a manner of living, a way in which you live. Start in love. Continue in love. Finish in love. Jesus loved us. He sacrificed for us. And so when it says an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma, this is an idiomatic expression which means the sacrifice is accepted. It, it's, it's almost like if somebody gave you a bouquet of flowers and the girl smells it and she goes, hmm, this smells lovely. Or a present is given and someone goes, this is wonderful. This is beautiful. This is exactly what I want. Here in this circumstance, it means that the idiom of the, the, the fragrance or the sweet-smelling aroma, it means that the love is acceptable and the sacrifice is acceptable. The best way that we can imitate God and so prove that we're his beloved children is to walk in love, but it's a kind of love that is sacrificial, that is not self-serving, but other-serving. And so, again, it begs the question, are you a child of God? And so when Paul is writing this, and he's, he's basically saying, if you're a child of God, then it makes perfect sense that you would walk in love. It makes perfect sense that it would be a sacrificial kind of love. And what doesn't make sense is to be sour and bitter and selfish and cranky. Are you a Christian? Yes. Then how do you explain your hypercriticism and unkindness? I'm trying to be discernment, and I'm trying to be this, and I'm trying to be that. Don't get me wrong. The Bible wants you to be discerning. Don't get me wrong. The Bible wants you later, because he's, he's going to actually say so in the text. He, he's going he's gonna to basically say, walk away from the things that are wrong and walk towards the things that are right He's actually going to say, not only do what's right, but expose what's wrong. It's not wrong for us to exercise discernment. And it's not wrong for us to be concerned about things that have gone wrong. But it is a problem when hypercriticism and grumpiness becomes so flagrant that people wonder whether or not it's a good idea to be a Christian when they look at my life or they look at your life. I'm going to tell you the secret of how to fill every chair in this auditorium. I'm going to tell you the secret of how to have a church 
that's the best church that you've ever been to or the best church that you've ever belonged to. The secret of a church that's the best church that you could possibly ever go to is for you to be in love with Jesus and live your life as if you really do love Jesus. Because guess what? Once Christians start acting in loving fashion, can you imagine going to church where you love everyone who is there and they love you? It becomes the kind of church that you want to go to. It's the kind of church where, again, it isn't a hypercritical church. Now, don't get me wrong. Again, we're talking about what it means to know God and love God and serve God. We want to be that kind of a church. We have no right to claim Jesus unless we're also wanting to be filled with the Holy Spirit, unless we're wanting to walk in love, unless we're wanting to walk in humility. And again, we disgrace our family when we fail to walk in love. John MacArthur hinted that perhaps the greatest evidence of love is undeserved forgiveness. I was reading today of a quote by Walt Whitman, and he, Walt Whitman basically said, I think I deserve all the enemies that I have. And he said, and I think that I don't deserve all the friends that I have. What an interesting thing to say. We don't deserve to have Jesus as our friend and our savior. We don't deserve to be loved, but we are. We don't deserve to be forgiven, but we have been. Can you think of a greater evidence of a hard heart, a loveless heart, than the presence of unforgiveness in your heart? I was challenged when I was preparing this message to ask the question, how far will love go? And of course, the right answer is, love will go as far as forgiveness can reach. How far can forgiveness reach? It can reach into your heart and into your circumstances and into your sin by the power of Jesus, the Jesus who saves you and cleanses you and changes you because this is the proposition of Christianity and Christ, that Jesus is a big enough savior to really save me and to save you. And so, Real love will almost always manifest itself at some point in personal sacrifice. This is again why it says in verse 2, walk in love. How can I do that? Like Jesus did. How did he do that? Sacrificially. And what does that mean? It was accepted by God. You have to understand something. Real love will almost always manifest itself at the point of personal sacrifice. How far is love willing to go? It will at least go as far as you saying, I'm willing to do without so that you can have. 
And so, sacrifice is a word that was heavy laden. Now again, I want you to just think for just a moment. I want you to go back in time and you're, you're now back in Ephesus. And you grew up in a pagan world where they worship the, the, at the temple of Artemis or Diana. Or you were involved in some other Greek worship or some other pagan idolatry. And you were involved in some sort of sacrificial system. You had an understanding that goats were killed and, and antmen Bulls were killed and other sacrifices were made because sacrifice was a word that was heavy laden with injury and pain and deprivation and death. And Paul isn't a person who's careless with words. So in verse 2 when he says, and walk in love as Christ also loved us and gave himself for us, he uses two words, an offering and a sacrifice. The word offering in the original language is pros, fora. It's a compound word. Pros means literally to bring something forward. So pros is forward. Fora is that something which is brought forward. And so here the word offering literally means that which is brought forward. Forward, whether it's oil or grain or an animal um, or a drink offering. And so the offering might be something like that. The word that Paul uses, again, for sacrifice, thysia, is the ancient root word theo, which has a lot of different meanings. Sometimes it meant slain, sometimes it meant killed, sometimes it meant slaughtered. But in this instance, when he says an offering, that which is brought forward, and a sacrifice, that thing which is killed. When you combine these thoughts together, Jesus is that which was offered for us, and Jesus is that which is slain for us. And so Paul is issuing an invitation that you're to bring yourself forward for the purposes of sacrifice. It takes all the offerings described in the book of Leviticus to capture the many-sided or the multifaceted meaning of the sacrifice of Jesus. Remember in the Old Testament in the book of Leviticus, he's the burnt offering and he's the grain offering and he's the peace offering and he's the trespass offering. And again, the Bible describes when these offerings are accepted <laughs> as being fragrant. And so now let's put all the concepts together that when you love and sacrifice, you're revealing your paternity, that you're children of God. Then we put off, look what it says, but fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints, neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather the giving of thanks. It's interesting, again, 
when he says, but fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints. It's interesting to me how many people, when they're confronted with their sin, they'll respond by saying, I'm no saint. And you go, no, no, no time out. You are. You are a saint. Are you a Christian? Yeah, I'm a Christian, but I'm no saint. No, 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 no. You have a misunderstanding. What's your understanding of saint? Well, I grew up in a religious tradition where a saint was a very holy person who never did anything wrong. That's not me. No, no, that's not what a saint is. A saint is a person who's been set apart by God through Christ. It is the proper name of everyone who calls themselves Christian. It's the ordinary word that's used for an extraordinary group of people who've been changed by a powerful savior. Paul lists the enemies of love. So before we begin our talk about this stuff, look at the list, fornication, uncleanness, covetousness. It shouldn't even be named. These are the enemies of love. These are the things that thwart love, that hurt love, that make love difficult or even impossible. In the early days of the FBI, J. Edgar Hoover, believe it or not, came up with a gimmick. The gimmick was called the 10 most wanted list. What he would do is he would take men and women who were guilty of egregious crimes and he would put them on this list. And often these were people who were enemies of freedom, dangerous to the public. They were talked about as being public enemy number one, number two, number three, number four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. They were put on the list and when they were removed from the list, then something else was put on the list. Paul is going to single out these certain offenses that were to be banned, excluded from the life of the saint because they're enemies of love. We are Christ followers. We are Christians. And so Paul begins with sexual sin, fornication, pornea. It's translated fornication, but it actually means a potpourri of everything sexual and everything improper. In other words, this is a great big word which incorporates everything that is inconsistent with what the Bible says about appropriate sexual behavior. So, again, if you ask a different question, well, why does Paul begin here? Why does he start with that word? Is it because it's the worst sin of all? I don't think Paul begins here because it's the worst sin. I think he begins here because it's the besetting sin that is prevalent in Ephesus. The, it's, Ephesus is sort of like the Las Vegas of the ancient world. This is a place that is sexually soaked sexually saturated. Ephesus is sexual Disneyland. And because Ephesus served as the center of the cult of Diana or Artemis, Artemis is the goddess of fertility. 
The way people worshipped in Ephesus was by engaging in sexual acts. In the ancient theaters of Ephesus, sex masqueraded as love. It pretended to be something different, but it was heartbreaking and cheapening of real love and real intimacy. So imagine you grow up in a world that is sexually saturated and you go, I don't have to imagine it. I'm living in that world. And you're exactly right. You're exactly right. So again, can you imagine this list? Would it have been appropriate? Is this the first problem in Jonathan Edwards' Puritan England? Probably not. Was this the the, the biggest problem in, in 1650? No. Was this the biggest problem in this particular place or that particular place? Not really. Is it the biggest problem now? In a way it is. Because we live in a culture and a society that has already made the decision that sexual expression is more important than any other freedom. But they're kind of walking it back right now. Even in our culture and society, they're wondering, is there anything that is too far? Is there anything that's so gross and immoral and inappropriate that we have to say, no, you can't do that. And so the Christian, the Christ follower, the person who knows Jesus, who loves Jesus, who is known by Jesus and loved by Jesus, will begin to ask and answer the question, well, again, what's God's plan and what's God's design? Sexual perversion does not promote God's love. It pretends to a type of love. And so in your culture, in your society, you will hear people say stuff like, how can you deny anyone the right to love each other? And you go, let me be clear here. Are are you saying that sexual expression is how you define love? And remember, their definition of love is different from your definition of love. Remember, love in the Bible isn't sexual expression exclusively. Love in the Bible is that emotion or drive which motivates you to do what's right towards that other person. And so fornication doesn't promote God's love. Fornication perverts God's love. Fornication destroys intimacy and marriage and family and souls. And every single day I experience this because people come to our church and they say my marriage is over with because my spouse was unfaithful or this person is addicted to pornography or this person is addicted to this kind of sexual expression and what it does instead of helping it hurts satan is in the business of fake cheap superficial reproduction satan says You want love? I'll give you love. I'll give you unrestricted, guilt-free sexual expression. You've heard it said, you can only have sex in God-given husband or God-given wife. Well, guess what? I'll change the law of the land so that you can marry your husband or your wife. And it doesn't matter if it's a male or a female or your next door neighbor or everyone who lives with them. And pretty soon, it could be your pet. You might wonder, is there any limit where a person who wants to express themselves will say, the government has no right to in any way restrict 
my sexual freedom. For the Christian, the Christian is saying, no, sexual freedom isn't the highest freedom, and sexual freedom can't be exercised disconnected from the character of God, disconnected from the word of God, disconnected from the design of God. And so when you're having this argument with people, you need to be able to ask and answer the question, did God make you? Did God design you? Was it a mistake? No. God understands the nature and the character of how we can act or not act. Years ago, a Boulder High School Assembly school official said these words. I'm quoting them. We know you're going to have sex. We know that you're going to experiment and explore your sexuality. We know you're going to take drugs. Let's figure out a way so that you can do these things and not kill yourself in the process, unquote. Can you imagine that? That's the culture in which we live. That's the school that you send your children to. Satan will provide a counterfeit, lust, people apart from Christ, They want hope, and they want love, and they want fulfillment, and they want satisfaction. And so we need to be able to have the conversation and say, I get that you want love, and I get that you want fulfillment, and I get that you want satisfaction. I'm wondering if you might consider what God has to say and what Christ is willing to give in order for you to have exactly what God desires, not the cheap fantasy of lust that fills most people's lives on this planet. For the Christian who abandons Christ and who embraces lust admits that what God wants and what God expects and what Jesus models is a hopeless fantasy. You Christians say, you can't live that way. People mock and make fun of (laughs) Tim Tebow. What? You're a virgin? I I follow Jesus and I want to honor him. And according to the Bible, this is how I'm supposed to honor him. (laughs) You are so hopelessly naive and so hopelessly out of touch. But what happens when the ordinary Christian basically embraces what is said in the Bible about how we're to conduct ourselves? How many men and women have left the church and left the gospel and left Christ to embrace lust? How many broken marriages? How many ruined lives? How many teenage pregnancies? How many ministers leave the pulpit? How much damage is done? And people will say that love is blind, but it's not true. Love has its eyes wide open and looks at Jesus. I'll tell you what's blind. Lust is blind. Lust is the thing that closes its eyes to the nature of God and the character of God and the will of God and the word of God. And lust is either unwilling or unable to see the tragic consequences of sin. Even the church will sometimes peddle the lie that lust is love. 
that homosexual behavior isn't really sinful behavior, that marital unfaithfulness is really not that big of a deal. R. Kent Hughes calls this the cookie jar syndrome. He writes, a little boy's mother had just baked a fresh batch of cookies. She gave the usual instruction. No one was to eat cookies until after dinner, but it was not long after that she heard the lid of the jar move and she called out, son, what are you doing? To which a meek voice replied, my hand is in the cookie jar, resisting temptation. You laugh for good reason. Too late. The fact is no one can resist temptation when your hand is already in the cookie jar. And there are cookie jars all around us, aren't there? Instant access to porn. Every single one of you who has a smartphone, all you have to do is hit Google and you are just one step away from unbelievable things. We live in a sexually saturated society. How does the Christian keep his or her hand out of the cookie jar? There's only one way to do it. It's to put on biblical love. That's why he said what he said earlier. You, you have, if you're going to imitate God, if you are going to put on love, if you're going to walk as Jesus. So what's on Paul's enemies list? Fornication. What else? All uncleanness. What is that? What is uncleanness? You didn't take a bath? No. It could be translated impurities. It's the word that Jesus used to describe the rotting bones of the religious leaders inside of their whitewashed tombs. Do you remember when he says, on the outside you are like whitewashed sepulcher, but inside you're full of uncleanness. This is that word. Dead men's bones. The other ten times the word appears in the New Testament, it's always in relationship to sexual sin. It can mean immoral thoughts. It can mean fantasy passions, perverse ideas, every form of corruption. These are the selfish and counterfeits of true love. This is the self-centered love. This is, this is the person who says to you, I will love you if, and then you fill in the blank. That's not, that's what this is. Lust isn't interested in commitment. Lust isn't interested in anything other than satisfaction. Lust is way more interested in getting what it wants. And then he writes, all covetousness. The word might seem out of place, especially since he's been talking about sensual and sexual sin. But covetousness is a word that means greedy. All three sins have at least this in common. They're linked to an uncontrollable appetite. That's part of the point of the passage. Each is linked to something that is out of control. The fornicator and the covetous person each desire to satisfy the appetite by taking what does not belong to them. And that's why it makes perfect sense that it would be here. Maybe the best illustration I've ever heard to describe greed involves the way Eskimos catch wolves. Do you know how they catch wolves? 
They'll take a knife and they'll coat it with blood and then they'll coat it with another coat of blood and another coat of blood until they make this almost knife popsicle. And then in the cold Arctic freeze, the wolf will approach the blood lollipop and begin licking it. But because it is frozen, his tongue becomes insensate until he nicks his, his own tongue. And then he, as he's in his feverish pitch, he begins to swallow his own blood until he is dead. It's interesting. I wrote, they place it where the wolf can find it. Attracted by the smell of the blood, they lick until they lacerate their tongue. Since the nerves are frozen, the wolf begins to swallow its own blood. What a stark picture of the person who's trapped in their own sensual circumstances where all of a sudden they are out of control. Let it not be named among you. Look what it says. Let it not be named among you as is fitting saints. But it is named among us. Christians aren't to dwell on these things, let alone participate in these things. So what else is on the Christian's enemy list of love? Filthiness, foolishness. Foolish talking, coarse jesting, immorality and, and vulgarity go hand in hand. He says, but fornication and all uncleanness, covetous, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints. Neither filthiness or foolish talking or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather the giving of thanks. Paul is warning again about the sins of the tongue, but think about this for a moment. He's talking about things that come out of our mouth, but he's really talking about the things that lie deep in our heart, isn't he? Because it can't come out of your mouth unless it's first found in your heart. So people who engage in sexual activity will also engage in vulgar speech. Those who enjoy cultivating sensual lives enjoy sensual speech. There are really two good indicators of a person's character. If you really want to know what a person's like, find out what they will laugh at. Or find out what they cry about. Both of those things will, will give you a peek into how they really are. Filthiness has to do with general obscenity. Filthiness is any talk that is degrading and disgraceful. Foolish talking is silly talk. It's actually derived from two Greek words, moros and logios. We get words like moron and talk from that. So the idea is that this is talk that is empty. This is talk that has no value. This is the kind of talk, if you've ever heard anybody say, don't talk like an idiot. That's this. That's what's being said. We could translate it that. This is conversation that has no point. This is brainlessness on parade. Coarse jesting, oral filth. It's the translation of a word that means to turn something easily. In what sense? This is the person who can take something that's innocent 
that's relatively harmless and then turn it into something crass or rude. You'll remember in the Bible it says, to the pure, all things are pure. So imagine a person takes something that's a pure comment, that's just an offhanded comment, and then they turn it into something gross. They turn it into an innuendo. And so in light of the the teaching of the word of God, the whole point becomes we have to think about what we're saying. And while we're thinking about what we're saying, we have to think about what's inside of our heart. This is an innocent humor. This is senseless conversation that cheapens people. This is the kind of conversation that doesn't result in the edification of the individual that you're talking to, but is actually harmful and hurtful. I think it was Warren Wiersbe who said, the gift of wit is a great blessing, but when it's attached to a filthy mind or a base motive, it becomes a curse. And the moment I read that, I thought of almost every late night television show where people who are smart and people who are funny and people who are clever, they take this smartness and this funniness And then they attach it to a heart that is wicked and they wind up hurting someone. Once a comedian was involved with some coarse jesting and his his throat got a little bit dry and he asked for a glass of water and someone shouted, hey, while you're at it, why don't you ask for some soap and, and water and a toothbrush? Took a lot of nerve to tell a person, you know what? Maybe there's a line that goes too far. But here's what I know for certain. Cleaning the mouth with soap and water doesn't change the heart. If you don't believe me, ask my mother. Yeah, I grew up in that world. Did you? I'm going to clean your mouth out with soap. Okay, let's give it a shot. Let's see if that will work. It didn't change my heart. That's why dirty language is bad. It isn't just because of what's been said. It's because of where it came from. It reveals a dirty heart and it makes us vulnerable to moral change in what sense? Coarse language desensitizes the soul and then it opens us up to things that we wouldn't normally allow. And that's why we we have to watch what we say. And we prepare for eternity. Look what it says in verses 5 through 7. For this you know that no fornicator or unclean person or covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. Pause. When he says, for this you know. One translation says, you should know. One translation says, know this. Or as if clearly you do know. The believer follows God. By preparing for eternity. In what way? We follow God because we hear God's word. We heed God's warning. We prepare for eternity by doing three significant things. Paul's going to point out three facts. God has nothing to do with uncleanness. 
The profession of a person doesn't matter. When a person says, I'm a Christian, I love God, I believe the Bible, God knows I'm not perfect. God knows that I'm struggling or I'm dealing with this or, or dealing with that. God knows that I have a reason to continue in this unclean behavior. Here's part of the point. Is it true that we struggle? Yes. Is it true that we all have problems? Of course. Is it true that none of us are perfect? Clearly. But Paul is going to make it abundantly clear that a Christian can and will turn from their sin by the power of the Holy Spirit. The difference between a Christian and a pig is that when a pig falls into the mud, the pig stays in the mud. The Christian has to get up out of the mud and say, I don't belong here. This isn't who I am. This isn't what I'm supposed to be doing. If you continue to practice a lifestyle of sexual immorality, don't fool yourself into thinking that you have an inheritance in the kingdom of God and Christ. The, the text reads, has any inheritance? Who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of, of Christ and God? The idea here is no inheritance. The person may have plenty of things here, but they don't have anything there. Remember on Sunday, I said you can hold on to hope or you can hold on to sin, but you can't hold on to both. If you want to hold on to sin, you have to let go of hope. And if you want to hold on to hope, you have to let go of sin. And so the Bible is basically telling us that there is plenty of opportunity for us to do exactly what God wants us to do. The person who doesn't walk with God rejects everything worth having. And so the word, again, fornicator, here is, 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 has been translated whoremonger. It's, the, it's a different word. It's the word pornos. Again, it means every illicit form of sexual intercourse, prostitution, immoral behavior. So when he says, for this you know that no fornicator, pornos. This is the person who lives a lifestyle of sexual immorality, of sexual expression, who basically comforts themselves with their idea that their sexual behavior isn't hurting anyone or hardly anyone, but remember Paul has already made the argument, we're members of one another. We're members of one another. The person who doesn't walk with God rejects everything worth having. And so again, the word unclean is akathothartos. It means immoral. It, it has with it the idea of those things that begin dirty in the mind and then result in dirty in behavior. A covetous person is a greedy person. An idolater is a person who sets up anything before God. An idolater is a person who sets anything before God. The, so again, I'm going to suggest to you that the reason why this was a problem in Ephesus is because it's a problem in the human heart and it's a problem in every, every single generation. There were those primarily in the church who felt like 
their sins were irrelevant, that their sins didn't really matter, that God loved them and that he forgave them no matter what, no matter how wrong they were, no matter how selfish they were, no matter how rebellious they were. So think about this for a moment. For the person who says, God's going to love me and he's going to care about me, he doesn't care what I think about. He doesn't care what I say. He doesn't care how I live. And Paul is saying, that's not true. God cares about what you're thinking and about what you're saying and how you're living. Paul, remember, remember in the book of Romans, he says, should we sin more so that grace will abound? And he says, God forbid, or may it not be so. Paul says, don't come up with the wrong idea that grace gives you permission to live your life as if the gospel's not true. And so that's why he says in verse 6, let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of, of disobedience. When he says, let no one deceive you with empty words, because there will be people who will try to persuade you that what you think in your head or say with your mouth or feel in your heart or act out doesn't matter. They'll say, well, God forgives all of your sins, past, present, and future. Is that true? Yes, it is. Does that give you a license to sin? No. Do we sin? Yes. The missing component in the conversation is the power that God gives us by his Holy Spirit to live lives that are pleasing to him. The wrath of God is decisive anger. This is the deliberate anger that arises from his holy nature. It's the anger that is righteous and just and, and good. You may think that God overlooks the whoremonger who, who destroys people's family, the greedy person who neglects the, the needy. But in Romans 1.18 it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And so that's why Paul writes, therefore do not be partakers with them. He's basically saying, don't go there. Don't do that. The follower of Jesus, the follower of Jesus separates himself or herself from sin. Believers aren't to partake in the sin that's discussed in those, those verses. Now, think about this for a moment. He says, don't do them. Don't participate with them. Later, he's even going to say, don't even have fellowship with them. In 1 Corinthians 5.9, I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. And again, he gets into an argument. Because in 2 Corinthians, he's, when they read, well, you told us not to be involved with sexually immoral people. My mom, my dad, you know, they work at the Temple of Artemis. You know what? My brothers, my sisters, we, we come from a long line of prostitutes. Everyone in my family is involved in prostitution. And basically, Paul says, I didn't mean the unbelievers. He said, in order to not keep company with the unbelievers, you would literally have to say goodbye to the planet Earth. 
Who's he talking about? He's talking about the person who looks you in the eye and says, I love Jesus and I follow Jesus and I believe that the Bible is true. Well, then how do you explain this? The Bible's asking you to stop doing it. I don't, I don't want to stop. Well, then, I don't think I want to have fellowship with you because, not just because it's wrong, it's because there is a desensitization that takes place. In 2 Thessalonians 3.6 it says, But we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus, that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly and not according to the tradition which he received from us. That divisiveness and that, that disconnection that he's talking about is the instructions that have been given to us by Paul and by Timothy. We're ordinary saints, made extraordinary by God's power, by God's spirit, by God's word, by God's love. And if you'd like to help me make our church the most exciting place in the whole wide world, world it's as if you just simply embrace what Paul is saying imitate the Lord walk in love demonstrate it to one another and the moment you do that will become an extraordinary place filled with ordinary people who've received an extraordinary power from on high. Don't fool yourself into thinking that you can live this life by willpower. Okay, I'm going to be different. Tomorrow I'm going to wake up and I'm going to be different. You'll never be different until you're willing to put the one thing aside and put on the other thing that will give you the ability to walk in simplicity and humility and purity and power. It's when you put on Christ. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. It's, it's the Lord Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit that will give you the privilege of loving God and loving each other. Heavenly Father, these words are hard words. Paul was no stranger to living in a world that was deep and dark in sin, where people lived a lifestyle of sin that had been entrenched over generations. It's interesting to me that the Bible speaks to these issues with such poignancy and power. But somehow, we think we're living in a unique time with unique challenges and unique sins. But Lord, we know that the only thing that is really unique is the Savior, Jesus Christ the Lord, the only begotten who's able to 
wash us and cleanse us and change us and give us the power to be men and women who love you and to, who love each other. So, Lord, I pray that we would reread this text. Think about it for a very long time, especially when we get into trouble, especially when we lose our way, especially when just for a moment we forget what we read. And so again, Father, I pray for these men and women. I pray that you'd fill them with the Spirit. I pray that you'd fill them with, the, with your love. I pray that they'll have so much fun tomorrow as they celebrate with thanksgiving. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's